0: Listening to the Soil Talk Podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley AG. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. So, Mick, you know, both of us have quite a bit of uh, time spent in laboratories or working with laboratory data throughout our careers you know, in this episode, I think that's what we kind of want to go through is talk a little bit about the, you know, the science of laboratory testing, but a little bit of the art of using the data as well. So kind of want to go through, you know, our thoughts on the different lab tests, how we prioritize, what we look at on any piece of ground, um, the things that we want to have conversations with the growers about, the numbers that we're really confident in and we're, we're, it's easy to make decisions off of, and then the numbers that we have less confidence in and that really it's not as easy to make decisions off of and you know you talk to five different agronomists and you'll get five different answers on what they think is important on that lab test so but to start with for some of our listeners who maybe uh, have started a little later in the episodes and don't know our background Mick give us a little of your background and why you know you feel like you're a person competent to talk about laboratory testing.
1: Well Tim it, it goes back quite a ways actually uh, as I was a grad student, I was actually working full-time in the soil testing lab at Oklahoma State and started out actually as an undergrad and grinding soil and then it evolved into a technician there in the lab and spent some time there and then uh, spent a lot of time with Ward Laboratories in Kearney, Nebraska and, and working with Dr. Ray Ward and that was like going to graduate school all over again, so... Uh, got to help Ray develop some methods and and keep things in line and review results over the years, so uh, quite a bit of background there.
0: Yeah, and my background is a little more roundabout and different. My, my bachelor's degree and most of my original college work was actually in business administration, and I worked in, in industry for about... 10, no, 15 years before I went to work for Midwest Laboratories. And and like Ward Laboratories, it was started by an entrepreneur, Ken Pullman. Ken was my mentor and taught me the lab business and what the numbers meant and made me go out and do my own research projects just so I could learn by doing the work. And oh, after probably eight years at the laboratory, uh, working mainly in in sales and outside of the laboratory, I've worked very little in a lab. But uh, I, I got the feel that a lot of the industry and, and a lot of our agronomists out there were a little weak on the soil side and soil fertility side. So I spent a lot of time doing training for agronomists, uh, whether independent crop consultants or ag retailers, on how to understand that laboratory test, how to apply the, the information to their fields, and how to increase yield using the data off the lab test. But you know, when you combine the two of us, we've got a lot of background on the lab side
1: exactly tim you know and and you're talking about the weak points of of agronomists and i think both of us have a passion for fertility and and it really comes out when we sit down and talk about things and and brainstorm about different ideas of practices or things that we can test or how to create an understanding for those guys so uh, i think that just goes back to our passion level and and our years of experience in that industry.
0: Yeah, and who would have actually think that uh, talking about dirt for hours on end could be interesting, which my wife certainly does not. But yeah, the two of us are definitely kind of soil dorks and we have long conversations about a lot of the things we've talked about here on soil talk. But let's specifically today move into laboratory testing because it's you know as we're recording this, we're at the end of October, a lot of the crops are out. a lot of our guys are out pulling soil samples. Why do we do that, Mick?
1: You know, Tim, I always liken soil testing to a fuel gauge and an oil dipstick. And that goes back to some of my graduate work. And you don't know unless you measure something. And maybe that fuel gauge is, is our nitrogen. You know, we've got to know where our nitrogen status is in that crop. Maybe the dipstick for the oil level is actually our phosphorus is is one thing that I can really relate that to. Yes, we know we have to have a certain amount of oil in that tank in the reservoir so that engine runs smoothly. But if we don't, what happens to it? If we start blowing the engines up and and tearing things up. So uh, I think if you wanna know what you have out there and what your potential is on a field, you have to measure it.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. And guys that don't do soil testing, Truly missing the boat. I mean, if you're going to grow decent yielding crops, you've got to apply fertilizer. If you're going to apply fertilizer, you need to make decisions on how much to apply, and there's no better way to do it than soil testing. I've worked with a few guys who've done you know all their fertilizer application off of crop removal. Bad move. I mean, you need to understand what you got.
1: Your crop removal, guys, that, that's going to work for a short time, but... You got to think about what's underneath the ground. Where do, where do our plants live? They, the roots live in that soil and we have to have the proper nutrients in that soil in order to raise decent crops.
0: So when we get that soil into the laboratory, and I know you spent a lot of time working in the lab, both in the university system and at Ward Labs, um, you know what are the things that a laboratory needs to do to get that soil tested and to get numbers that have value out to the, the grower and his consultant.
1: You know, let's, let's back up and think about it. We're pulling soil samples today. Uh, we'll be pulling soil samples in the spring. Uh, we have unfavorable conditions at certain times. We can have wet soils. We can have super dry soils. One thing they, the first thing they got to do is they've got to create a homogenous soil sample to test. So they dry it and then they grind it and put it into some sort of container that they can scoop or weigh out of and in order to get those measurements. And that'd be the first step. Yeah,
0: one thing you you know you're kind of alluding to there is consistency. It's got to have the same moisture all the time. The sample, which is made up of a lot of different cores, has got to be well mixed together so they can truly get the average of all those different cores that were taken. And the work that they need to do, so like you're saying, scooping out how much soil you need, it needs to be consistent. That's what laboratory testing is all about. Can you replicate those numbers if you do that test exactly the same again? And they do things exactly the same every time. And that's how laboratories, you know, make their business work is they they produce replicable data that's accurate and gives you numbers that you can do business off of.
1: You know, I, it, every soil lab in the country has check soils. And they're probably started out as a bucket load of soil out of somebody's field or somebody off of somebody's land. And they did the same thing with that. They dried it and they ground it and then they put it into different containers, whether it's a five-gallon bucket or a trash can. But they want that soil to read the same... Throughout its lifespan at the lab.
0: Yep. And that's a key thing. And, you know, one thing we've seen newer soil tests come up, and we could spend a whole nother episode on that, but that lack of ability to replicate the numbers, you come back and do that test over and over and over again, just from changes in time. That's a problem. And that's one thing I always liked those base tests because I was always fairly comfortable that those numbers were going to come back the same. Now, when you go out and pull a different sample, you say, Well, I don't believe that. Once you go pull a different sample, that's different dirt. It's
1: completely different soil. So, yeah. uh, you know, and, and that leads me to think about something else is because of my background as a graduate student, uh, I developed, helped develop a, with a team precision management. And, you know, we're going to celebrate 25 years here next year of CVA having precision technology. Uh, So I look back and I think, gosh, I'm old. But, you know, we were sitting there doing one foot by one foot soil samples and seeing huge variabilities from one foot here until the next foot over. And so we started to learn more about that as a graduate student. And I look back at it, at it now, and I think it's dumb. It, it just, it's crazy. But at that time, we were still doing composite sampling. And we'd go out to a field and take 15, 20 cores and call it a sample. And we were finding that every foot could vary quite a bit.
0: Yeah, one thing that I really like about grid sampling or zone sampling, but, you know, we do a lot of grid sampling where I'm at. I know some of those samples are just flat out going to be wrong because that probe is going to end up somewhere where something pooped or there was a band of fertilizer or there was a fertilizer spill and it's going to throw it way off. Or maybe the farmer stopped
1: to take a leak.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Or that's where the manure spreader stopped a few times too often. Bottom line is there's incredible variation out there that's completely explainable if you go back and look at everything that's happened in that field, but most of us don't know everything that's happened in that field in the 150 years that it's been tilled, so because of that there's going to be variation, there's going to be inaccuracy, and when we go out and take more samples... We limit that inaccuracy, and that's what I like about precision ag and taking more samples is I know some of it's going to be messed up, but if I can mess it up on two and a half acres instead of 160 acres, I won't spend near as much wasted money trying to correct something that's not real. Exactly. So let's talk about the the tests themselves. So our growers and our uh, retailers, our, our FSAs, are going to get a lot of data. I, I'm on a couple of the email streams from the laboratory where I see every set of samples that comes across, and I get a lot of emails right now. So we've got a lot of data out there. When you go to try to weed your way through a lab test on a soil uh, sample, what numbers are critical to you, Mick? What's your priority list?
1: You know... I always start with pH, I I like to look at pH, see where that base pH of that field is. Are we neutral, are we acidic, are we basic? You know, where do we start there? And then we can move down the list of nutrients. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time on nitrogen soil tests, unless we're doing deep samples. Uh, Then I look at phosphorus, potassium, NP and K are our are three most limiting nutrients. That's where I got to start. And pH dictates a lot of interactions as we've talked about in the past.
0: You know, I hear a lot of, of uh, consultants or, you know, people I see out there on the internet, on a YouTube video, and a lot of them will say, oh, you're just an NPK guy. <clears throat> well, no, I'm not, actually. The first thing I look at on the laboratory test is cation exchange capacity. I'm, I'm looking at what your soil texture is. That's the most important thing to me. And the big thing I'm looking for is variation. If this field goes from 30 to five across the same field on C, C ranges, I got a lot of variability I need to try to figure out and understand and I might need to go pull some more samples and see what these areas are truly defined at. I might pull up the uh, a soil type or soil series map just to see does that make sense compared to what I'm seeing here on the map of the CEC variation. That's where I start. And then next, I'm at pH just like you, make' or organic matter. I'll look hard at organic matter too, and I'm looking again for variation. If things are kind of the same, I know I don't need to take that into account a lot. If things are what I'm kind of used to, I'm used to 2.5% to 3.5% organic matter. I'm used to CECs between 15 and 25. If everything that is what I'm used to, I don't need to make adjustments. But if it's unusual, a CEC of 5, an organic matter of 1, or an organic matter of 5%, I need to make adjustments.
1: Well, your farm is an organic matter of 7% because <laughs> you're on the other side of that river, right?
0: We have a little chunk of native prairie, and it's at about 6 to 7%. But anything that's been tilled for long, no, we're more in that 3 to 4 range. You know, uh,
1: Those are the ones that jump out at me is when that organic matter shoots up high, and then you start looking at the soil and where it came from, and it's like, oh, that makes sense, you know.
0: One thing I'll tell you guys about organic matter is it is not necessarily a positive when you have high organic matter. One of the best ways to have high organic matter is to have a spot that's just wet all the time. And that's not going to yield well. It won't, will not yield well at all. So back to the NPK, you know, why we talk about NPK so much is they truly are the proven nutrients to be most yield limiting across the Midwest. Period. So guys can go talk about boron and manganese and copper, and I think those are important too. They're all yield-limiting nutrients, but the ones that have been most proven to limit yield year in and year out, number one is nitrogen. Just look at a cornfield if you don't apply nitrogen and ask yourself if that's yield-limiting. Absolutely. Number two is phosphorus. We don't see it quite so obvious as much, but if you don't get phosphorus into the plant, and again, that depends a lot on that base fertility... You're going to have problems. And number three is potassium. It and nitrogen kind of go together quite a bit. So that's why we start there. It's not that that's the only thing we look at, but it's where we start. Because if one of those is a train wreck, your field is going to be a train wreck. And all the things I do with manganese and copper and boron aren't going to mean anything.
1: You know, I would agree, Tim. I I don't put a lot into the micronutrients until I have everything. Base fertility, NPK right, uh, zinc also. Uh, when I get those get those right, then I can start worrying about the micronutrients. But honestly, there's not many field there are not many fields out there that are in, right in N, P, and K. And when we get or zinc, you know, we've got a lot of in Nebraska, we've got a lot of soils that inherently don't have a lot of zinc to them. And so if we haven't been applying zinc, and then we get a really low zinc value and we can get all our other nutrients up there, well, we're not not—we're still
0: missing the boat. It's the law of the minimums yep. coming back to haunt us again. Yep, and you mentioned pH right off, Mick, and you are absolutely right. I mean, uh, the thing with pH is its effect on the chemistry of those nutrients and their availability to the plant as well as its effect on the microbes in the soil and their activity and their ability to cycle nutrients is huge. If it's wrong, then all the other things you're doing, you're working against this anchor that's just holding you back. I mean, can I apply enough phosphorus to make up for a bad pH? You bet I can. But it's probably not the best way to spend my money. Exactly. Nitrogen's the same way. I can apply more nitrogen to make up for the problems I'm creating with a pH that's at 4.8. But frankly, I'm still way limiting yield, and I'll never make up for everything I'm losing.
1: You know, Tim... When I think of different lab analysis, pH is pretty easy one because there's really only one way to measure pH. We're measuring the hydrogen ions in that soil, and some labs use a one one part soil, one part water. Some use two two parts water, one part soil. Uh, doesn't really affect the analysis a whole lot, but we start getting into the phosphorus. How many? Actual phosphorus tests can you think of off the top of your head, Tim?
0: Probably six. I would have six fairly common phosphorus tests out there, and every one of them produces completely different numbers. And if you were to look at one of those tests and apply it to the scale that's meant for another, you'll make a lot of really stupid decisions.
1: You know, and and you think about those six and uh, two of them or three of them maybe, can be analyzed different ways yep. with different instruments Absolutely. that give you different numbers Absolutely. also, Tim. So I'm just thinking
0: uh, extract solutions. You're you, right.
1: When you get extracts, and there's about three f- extracts that can be analyzed two different ways, and, and then you really start adding up and creating a lot of confusion in it. So I guess what is your preferred...
0: Uh, extract
1: and method of
0: analysis. Yep. So for me, it's the P1 Bray, because that's what I spent so much time working with at Midwest Laboratories. And then the the analysis of it, or the measurement of it is color metric, where we react it with a chemical that changes colors. Blue is the the color it, it specifically targets. And based on the, uh, the intensity of that blue, we can relate that back to a part per million of phosphorus that that extract solution, the P1 Bray, was able to take out of the soil.
1: So another way that they can analyze that is with an ICP. So they're blowing that extract through an argon plasma, plasma and measuring the color refraction from that. And that tends to give us a higher value, right, Tim?
0: Yep. So my understanding, or the way I always looked at it, was whenever you run something through an ICP, every bit of that element is going to be measured because you're super exciting that element by running that mineral or metal through plasma, and you're going to get it all. Whereas if you run something through a color a color metric analysis where you have to react with a chemical. There might be, say, phosphorus that's tied up organically, say, in in a little bit of organic matter, happen to make it through that filter, which is not plant available and is not going to show up on the test, whereas with the ICP, it will. So yeah, when I'm talking to a grower or a consultant, if you know that work uh, was done by an ICP, inductively coupled argon plasma, it makes plasma out of argon, You know the number's going to be a little higher, and you need a different scale. Right.
1: So, Tim, back when you were born,
0: (laughs) so that was a long, long time ago. Yeah, the 1800s.
1: They were developing these methods. And when they did these methods, they were originally color metric. And we've introduced different ways to speed up the process and so forth. How do we get from one scale to the next, is there a magic number? Is there, I know there's some labs out there that utilize one method of analysis and then they back calculate back to the original color metric methods, so.
0: My personal belief, Mick, is you need to report what you measure and have a calibration that matches your measurement. That calibration is, how does this relate to yield? How does this relate to how much fertilizer you should apply? I don't like it when you add an extra math step in there to regress something back to some some other measurements, uh, correlation and calibration. I just don't
1: the the regressions used quite a bit in this in in the soil te- testing industry and it, it is it's tough to follow because how do we know that this means the same thing in the field and and I struggle with that dramatically over time and uh, you know I understand the, that we don't have the money to go out and redo these correlation calibration uh, studies studies I mean I worked on one when I was in graduate school. It takes a lot of time and a lot of data to to create these, but uh, they certainly need to be redone, especially as the crop has evolved. You know, when we did these when you were younger and you started to do these. (laughs) Like
0: about World War II? Yeah, about
1: World War II time. Right right. after I finished my service.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) So when we did this, Our crops were different than they are today. Uh, You know, our critical phosphorus levels, I feel, are quite low compared to the crops that we're raising today. We've pretty much gotten to narrow row systems. We are raising a heck of a lot higher yielding crops than we have. The genetics are different. I really feel that the universities need to, or somebody needs to start doing some more of these studies, and let's see where we're at. Are we right or wrong?
0: Yep, and that, and for our viewers who aren't, you know, familiar with soil science, the correlation and calibration studies are. They find a way to test for a nutrient in a soil. Generally, it's an extract solution, how much of that nutrient, that extract will bring up. Kind of like our our plants uh, exude an exudate. It's got a little acid in it. It's got some sugar in it. And that helps them pull nutrients out of the soil. The same thing is true of our extract solutions, although they're much more aggressive than any root exudates. Based off that number, is there a correlation between that number and yield? That's the first part of correlation calibration. Is there a correlation to the numbers we see in this method to yield? And then secondly, if we can find that correlation, generally it's below a certain level, how much fertilizer do we need to add to maximize profitable yield? And that's the calibration. That is a lot of work because you've got to do that across a lot of soil types, a lot of weather environments, really, at least across the state, generally it's more across a region or even the entire United States, could even be international. That's a lot of work, a lot of money spent. We did some great work with that back in the 50s, 60s, even 70s. We haven't done as much lately. Do we need to redo it? I don't know. But we do stretch that knowledge into things that are new, like you said, new yield levels, new crops new weather conditions compared to what we used to.
1: Absolutely, Tim, and I I don't know if the right answer is to redo those studies, but maybe do some checks on those studies would certainly be helpful to me.
0: All right, so it's probably time for a funny farm story, and Mick, I heard you've got a good one for us.
1: Absolutely, Tim. So, this is a recent one. So, this summer, we're we're out looking at trials that I put out, and uh,
0: and for those of us who aren't in the room, which is pretty much everybody but the three of us in here, it's Mick and I and Bree, who is our uh, our editor and our uh, our taskmaster master, I will say. And Bree does a lot of help uh, with our whole agronomy staff on on putting together information and helping us relate to our customers better.
1: So I invite Bree to come along because. She has a drone, and I want to get above a trial on downforce and really take a look at it. And so we go to the first downforce study, and where we're at, we don't have cell phone service. Well, those of you that know anything about drones, you got to have cell phone service to guide your drone. So we skip that one, and we go to the next place to do our where our downforce trial is, a different field, about 8, 10 miles away. And... Bree did a wonderful job, just took some tremendous video of, of that field from above, and we could see the different treatments out there and so forth. I'm about, oh, about to finish up, and, and her battery gets a little low. And
0: Now, was this Bree's battery or the drone's battery? The drone's battery. Okay, so and it wasn't operator error. It was actually the battery in the drone. The
1: battery in the drone was starting to go low, and it was only a hundred degrees out. You know, we're all out there sweating anyway, and the drones deciding to come back and land. Well, anybody that farms a lot, there's not a really a lot of good places to land, especially late summer <laughs> in late summer. Cause this is August and, and there's not a great place to land this drone, but we got a nice little pivot road. And I said, well, there's trees there, but that pivot road going to serve as our landing spot and breeze bringing it in and it's coming down and, and she thinks she's got it. Well, it starts to dive towards the trees, and the drone had turned directions. <laughs> and she thought she was telling it to go left, and she told it to go right, and the drone goes straight
0: into the trees. And uh, drones tend to be a good tree trimmer, Tim. So I've always thought that a young lady's a perfect person to give directions, but in this case, that was not true. Is that what I'm catching? <laughs> I don't think so. She... <laughs> oh, yeah. she
1: gave dir- Gave directions correctly. The thing was, the drone was turned around backwards. So it's the drone's so fault.
0: So it was the drone's fault. I, I had heard that it was the drone's fault, but I thought maybe it could possibly be Bree's fault, but that is not true, obviously.
1: I won't say that Bree could have looked at the lights and tell, told which direction the drone was facing, but.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. So, yeah, anybody that's flown a drone much, and we've had multiple accidents here, we, we actually had one this summer where uh, it went up and, uh, and the battery died just as it came up, launched off the back of the pickup, and we were able to break both the drone and the pickup as it came back down. <laughs> yeah, drones are a challenge. <laughs> well, nice work, Bree. <laughs> All right, back to laboratory testing. We might have to break this one into two episodes the way we're going. But yeah, like you said, Mick, uh, method is huge. And even even on things like our cations, our potassium, our calcium, our magnesium, you know, ammonium acetates are really common extraction out there with a lot of our traditional laboratories. But more and more have started to use the Malik 3 extraction.
1: Doc, Dr. Malik found a way to get it all out in one shot. And and uh, we tend to do that because of ease. Uh, yep. I mean, you you know these Soil labs, once harvest starts, they start getting more and more samples, and they've got more samples that come in through UPS in the mail in one day than they can do in a week usually. So uh, any way that they can make that step a little bit easier to get quality, repeatable results out in a time-efficient manner is what they're trying to do.
0: But the grower or their consultant just need to understand that if if a different extraction was used than what they're used to, it might move those numbers off a little bit. I found potassium between the malic three extraction and the ammonium acetate extraction to be awful close, but generally I saw malic three just a little bit higher, maybe five ten percent. Yeah,
1: I would I would agree, Tim. It's not too far high, but it's it's just a tick higher. And uh, say you test with a certain lab, but for years and you're used to seeing this potassium value then they change extractions you can see that yeah. you know you'll see it
0: so mick let's talk about phosphorus a little bit more you know uh, when i'm looking at that p1 bray i'm looking for a number somewhere in that low of 20 part per million and at 20 part per million, that's really as low as i want to go and and really if if a guy's pushing yield say 225 or above we can't go that low um 30 part per million, my top end, and even at 30 part per million, that doesn't mean we're not applying anything. It just means I don't need to build anymore. But if I can get built into that range for most growers I work with, somewhere in that range is going to be pretty good. But that's the P1 Bray. I moved to the Malik 3, and let's just say color metric. I found it ran a little higher, so I might shoot more for that 25 to 30. Um, Olson, complete different test. Now instead of an acid, you're using a, a caustic solution. And now it's more 15 to 20. So again, just the different method give you different goals to shoot for for P1 Bray. Your, your thoughts? You know, the,
1: the, I would agree. I'm, I'm very similar with you in, in the value ranges. Uh, I think that if we're pushing that 250 to 300 environment, Maybe our P1, Bray P1 we bring up to a minimum of 30 because we're, our ultimate goal, when you open that bag of seed corn is, it's got 600 bushels in it or whatever number they wanna use this year. But if it's 600 bushels potential, everything we do beyond sticking it in the ground, we screw up, right? So we need to have more there for, to, produce six, to produce over 300 bushel than what we did at 150.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and when uh, you know, I think about all those different phosphorus methods, the one thing I'll also tell a girl to do is don't jump around. Pick a good laboratory where you get good advice and you're comfortable with the numbers they're giving you. They seem to be accurate. They seem to be repeatable. And stick with it. The worst thing you can do is switch from lab to lab on different years that just do soil testing. You're just chasing your tail now. And, and I even said that working for a laboratory. I mean, I competed against you at Ward, but if guys were happy with Ward laboratories, I'd say, you know what? If you're happy with the information you're getting and the help that you're getting there, stick with it. Don't change labs just for fun. If I'm 50 cents a sample lower, it's not worth it. Just Stay with a lab that you're comfortable with. Don't go running around because every time you change, it just kind of makes a lot of your historical numbers nearly worthless. Exactly. You
1: know, the consistency of that number and that methodology is probably the most important thing if you want a history on the field. Uh, you know. Tim, you know, you start jumping around from lab to lab, and and we both have worked with the ALP and NALP the American laboratory proficiency program and national association of laboratory proficiencies and Bob Miller's from Colorado and, and he takes all these soil, he takes a uniform soil and sends it to all the different labs and, and make sure that the labs are reading within the same ranges. And there's a lot of differences in those numbers from one lab to the other, even with the same procedure, you know, That's right. So we got to be consistent with these results and, and where we're looking at results from
0: little things like, you know, how long do you grind? What exactly is your fineness of grind? Even if you're going through the same mesh screen, just a little bit longer in that grinder is going to make a difference. How long do you shake? You know, and there's a method with, say, the P1 Bray, how long you're supposed to shake that extract solution, but are you five seconds long or five seconds short? Or a new technician is the one running the, draw, the dial, and when he turns it to You know the ten seconds. Is he a little bit further than the last guy? A lot of things can make a lot of difference.
1: How fast are you getting? Are you getting that soil extract filtered and that all? There's so many steps that take that happen within that process. Consistency in one facility. I know from my experiences when you change technicians, it took a long time for them to get to the same consistency level than somebody that had been there for 10 years.
0: Yep, that does make a big difference. So Mick, we, we're really uh, hitting into our time here pretty good. Um, let's go ahead and con, uh, continue the conversation. We'll do it into another episode and we'll come back and we'll kind of finish up the phosphorus discussion, maybe just talk through the numbers on the other um, methods that we talk about, you know, the Malik 3, the Olsen, and then we'll move into some of those other nutrients. And, you know, you and I are, are comfortable, real comfortable with things like, cation exchange capacity, pH, phosphorus, even potassium. But as we move down that scale and into things like boron and manganese and base saturation percentages, what do those numbers mean? And we'll we'll talk about that. We probably won't agree and maybe we, you know, might get a little bit of heated argument here on this deal. <laughs> Could happen. So with Mick Godekin, Tim Mundorf and Bree Gobin, our uh, expert editor and drone pilot, this is All Talk. Thank you for joining us today on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CVA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cvacoop.com, and you can see our Precision Focus blog videos every Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Tim Mundorf.